Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies, the home of all things horror, haunted, and Halloween-y. I am one of your hosts, Miss Melmore. She sure is, and I'm your other host, Mr. Craigers. She sure is, and tonight on our 113th episode, we are headed back to school for the year with the 1998 teen horror comedy sci-fi Genre darling. Yes. <laughs> the Faculty. The Faculty, directed by Robert Rodriguez, mm-hmm. written by Kevin Williamson, and starring just a, a plethora of 90s teens yep. um, and like kind of legendary character actors too. Yeah. Like, for the older members of the cast. Like, this is a true ensemble movie. Yeah. And it's like a sneaky ensemble movie. It's one of those things where you're watching it and you just start to see faces and you're like, oh, 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 oh. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It is back to school season, isn't it? Which is crazy to think about. Yeah, I know that because sometimes I'm driving and I get stuck behind a bus. Behind the bus. Yeah. Um, But back to school season also means tis fall. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, officially in a few days yes. and socially for a couple weeks now. Um, and that is very exciting because fall is the time, you know, as much as this is the podcast where October never dies, we are mostly excited whenever things get close to or are in October. Well, the calendar matches my internal vibe. I'm actually wearing my Salem shirt from you our trip last September. To bring some of that energy to today's episode. Nice. Um, So yeah, I think it'll be a good time. This is such this is such a fun movie. Yes. And we had brought this up a while ago to do as back to school, so it's fun to get to it. Yes. Yeah. No, it's one of those movies where, like, I remember seeing it often in Blockbuster, like on the the shelf and you know vaguely being aware of like its existence and it being a horror movie but never uh I never I never grabbed it off the shelf in Blockbuster actually I mean I can answer fully when we discuss where and when did you first uh see it but uh it was kind of a late watch for me okay yeah I yeah, I feel like I like the poster was always like the cover, like that, yeah. that 90s thing with like all of them. Yeah. Sort of like displayed. That was just like, yeah, one of those constant like blockbuster images. Um, even if I never grabbed it at blockbuster either. Mm. Nice. Interesting to think about. <clears throat> well, before we hop into that, uh, should we do a little read, watch, listen, check in? Since, in addition to fall sort of getting underway these past couple weeks, uh, this week, for sure, the, you know, early planners of Hooptober got to get started. Yes. For those of you doing the Hooptober challenge, um, as arranged by uh, user Cinemonster, um, this is the 10th year of the challenge. we, Miss Mel and I, are both participating this year, um, and I think 
we're both two films in, correct? As yes. a recording? Yes. Yeah. Was Red Eye the one? Was that your uh, West that Craven? Was my, that was my first one, yeah. Yeah. My, yeah, for my West Craven criteria. And then I watched um, The Zodiac Killer, which is one of the bonus ones for this year. Yeah. I have that as a later Zodiac Killer. I almost did Red Eye, but then I didn't. You started with, what did you, I can't. I started with The Crazies. The Crazies, yes. The original. The original. Uh, and then I watched uh, A Boy and His Dog, which is a little bit of an unorthodox, you know, it's horror. It's just sort of like, it's very, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I'm it's not. very, it's very strange. Um, but um, I wanted to watch it. It's a post-apocalyptic category, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I've been wanting to watch it for a while because it was, I mean, it's very influential in a couple different sci-fi films, but most notably like the Mad Max series. Um, but um, it's a goofy, goofy film um, in like very, very strange ways. But um, it was interesting to watch that and the crazies back to back. Well, 70s films, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it's funny because... I watched I watched them both on Tubi, but the version of a boy and his dog on Tubi is like super like crappy quality because it's somebody truly like their VHS like, <laughs> like scanned digitally and that's it. Like you can see at different points during the movie the tracking thing pops up. Like <laughs> very funny. Um but it was interesting to watch them back to back just because um like both very like you know reminder of like how very like blunt and brutal 70s horror was mm. um you know how very like intense the topics were in those films the violence yeah. and that sort of thing um and then like also like both films kind of deal with like a fear of like central authority in some capacity um, since a boy and his dog is dystopian and deals with like an absolutely fucking nuts um, like dystopian society that is like thriving in this desert like it's truly like if the capital you know it's like very much the capital but if the capital was like R-rated <laughs> like, it's, it's goofy um, but yeah it was, a, it was a good start in Galaxy of Terrors next with a very baby Robert Englund and, you know, the infamous weird-ass worm scene. Right. The big, uh, that's the big one from that, from that film. I've never seen that either. Um, so I'll be curious to, for your, for your review. Yeah. Um, yeah. And any other chatterers out there that are also doing Hooptober, uh, let us know. Um, or you can find us on Letterboxd as well, where, um, you know, the challenge is sort of, taking place uh i'm just under there i think under my name yeah i i am under my normal my twitter handle yeah and stuff um how did you find uh, the zodiac killer in red eye uh i found red eye to be red eye was a missing craven for me mm-hmm. um i remember when it came out like i remember seeing trailers yeah. for it and stuff yeah and i think you know, 
at some point, like once it was on cable, I caught like chunks of it, but mm -hmm. it was, ne there was never like a sit down start to finish. And I was like, well, this is a, this is a good excuse. Cause I, it's one of the last Cravens I haven't seen, but mm -hmm. anyway, um, I enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was, uh, like fun and it's, it's very like fast paced and very sort of like tight um keelan murphy and rachel mcadams both great good chemistry i kind of wish they would be in more movies together yeah it was a fun easy start to the challenge and then i like went a little bit deeper with zodiac killer and that was um the story behind that movie is a lot more interesting than the movie itself mm -hmm. um, it was made two years after um, the killings, or at least when the killings began in 69. Mm -hmm. And it was basically like designed to be a honey trap. Like they screened the movie in San Francisco, like the director and the crew believing that the actual Zodiac killer wouldn't be able to resist coming to the premiere. <laughs> and they had this like contest going on where the, they asked like a question of everyone that was coming to see the movie. It was like, I think it was, why do you think the Zodiac kills? And you this wrote is insane. Yeah. And so you wrote down your answer and you put it in a box and they said, oh, and we'll pick the most creative answer or something and they'll win a Kawasaki. But really, someone from the crew was hiding inside the box and comparing the handwriting of the answers to, to the like ciphers and ciphers and the letters that had been sent to the San Francisco Chronicle. And so, and like the plan was that if anything matched or looked close enough, they were gonna like ambush whoever submitted it and like interrogate them. And they actually did that with one guy who ended up getting cleared. And then supposedly, like, the story goes that while they were focused on this other guy, more answers were obviously submitted to the box. And there was one of them that was a close match, handwriting-wise, that said, I was here. So I'm of two minds on this. <laughs> First mind is, this makes sense specifically with the Zodiac Killer, because we know this, this whoever this person was was a huge egomaniac about their shit and like would 100% show up to this. Second mind is this is an absolutely fucking bonkers thing to suggest <laughs> to law enforcement. Yes. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna imagine that the quality of the film was probably not supreme since it was made simply to be a honey trap for yeah, it's, the the acting is definitely um, a little uh, drama clubby. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't recognize like any of the names or faces. If these people acted again, good for them. But um, well, I guess how read it. And um, they take a lot of liberties with like they present all of the murders that actually occurred. But then they also like they provide their own backstory and name and like 
there is a character who they reveal at the end of the first act as the Zodiac. And we we see him commit all of these other fictional murders, as well as the ones that we know for sure the Zodiac killer committed. And he's a Satanist, and it's he's like yeah it's it's a little bonkers narrative wise um and it's yeah it's low budget it's not like it's not bad but it's Mm. for what it was it's just sort of um i don't know maybe a little cheap it's also like weirdly misogynistic in ways it doesn't have to be And, like, I get sort of, like, the late 60s and early 70s. That was just sort of, like, the deal. Yeah. But this one just is is strange. But I think because just of its weird, the idea of the film and what it was meant to be, it was interesting to sort of, like, watch it and be thinking about that. Um, It kind of reminded me, because the way it ends, he just, like, obviously he gets away with it. Um, because at the time he, the Zodiac had not been caught, nor has he ever been caught. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of the end of um, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Oh, where he had the boots. and the... Yeah, the boots. He, and he's going to see The Town That Dreaded Sundown. And it's like, oh, I wonder if they plucked that from here. I was going to say, that seems like a some yeah. dude watching TV late at night. And it's like, I had the best fucking idea. I had the best idea. Yeah. Um. So. It's interesting, and if yeah, if you're gonna, you have it on your list for later in the I challenge. Do, yeah, yeah. I'll be curious to see what you think. Yeah, um, it is interesting though. You say that it's misogynistic in a way that it doesn't have to be, and that was the '70s because that was a lot of. That's the other thing I'm thinking about too with these first two films is like, not so much the crazies because the crazies is just like, doing you know, thing. yeah, doing thing. But a boy and his dog is like. <sighs> You know, and if you read my, my review of his spoilers, so if anyone wants to read it, it's tagged. But, um, you know, it's very much like the, the like, like, cis, white, straight man's, like, um, fanta- like post-apocalyptic fantasy of, right. like, dudes being bros and all you want, all you need to do, like, all you care about is food and sex and however you can get it. Um, there's no like overt scenes of that sort of thing in A Boy and His Dog, which I appreciate because, you know, as we'll see when I, you know, I do my review of the, which I've seen the crazy ass worm scene in, in Galaxy of Chair, (laughs) and it's absolutely so stupid and unnecessary. Um, but I do think that's an interesting thing to look at with a lot of these, particularly 70s horror films, because if you look at, speaking even of Wes Craven, like, uh. Last House on the Left is just, like, insane. So, um. yeah. Yeah, it was a grimy decade. It was a, <laughs> people were, it was it was very cynical. It was very, like, dark. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I thought even, like, because I think, I said in my review about the crazies, like, even the camera work just has that feel of, like, a very brutal, very gritty very like jarring um you know just feel to it and that like that totally just every time i see something like that i'm like i know it's a 70s film it's yeah it's very like guerrilla filmmaking Mm -hmm. sort of like cinema verite ish yeah 
like yeah it's it, i like that i think that fi- kind of filmmaking is interesting um but it's, it's especially interesting that it's so closely associated with the 70s yeah um but yeah good start to the october and yeah. i'm excited i might at some point just i'm trying to go in the order that i have them on my list there's a chance i will jump around though just because vibes yeah, that's kind of what I do. I'm a jumper when yeah. I make my Hooptober list, and I'm just I'll just sort of be like, what am I in the mood for right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are definitely there are some on my list for this year that I'm like, I'm gonna save those until October, yeah. like at least. Um, yeah, some of my later ones are more. You know, I've got um, the Hounds of Baskerville, Dracula AD, 1972, Black Sunday, like ones that are very like Octobery and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but some people totally plan it out that like day by day they know exactly what they're gonna watch and maybe no. There's no wrong way to do it. Yeah. So yeah, that's excited for it. And then at the end of towards the end of October, we've got our um, horathon. We do. Which I feel like just you talking about this stuff, the Zodiac Killer could totally be something that they like. I could see them showing at one of these, like. You know, I my I do hope like with a little bit of this Hooptober stuff, I'm I'm trying to be more and more prepared for their um, the guessing. You, know, you guess the the movies, but I I thought that too when I was watching. So I was like, oh, they would t- could totally show this at the at the horathon. Yeah. Um, it would and it would it would play well, I think. Yeah. In that sort of vibe. Um, I also. Uh, I also snuck in, we were talking about before um, the episode, uh, A Haunting in Venice. Mm-hmm. I saw that last night, which was um, sort of fun and creepy and um, lots of ghost vibes and and whatnot. It's, you know, the Kenneth Branagh adaptation of Agatha Christie's Halloween Party. The Kenneth Branagh's Mustache Mysteries. Kenneth Branagh's Mustache Mysteries. Yeah, only this one takes on, like, a supernatural angle um, as opposed to the first two. And and that was good. And then I also saw, I guess this was last week, The Nun 2. And that's <laughs> and, all we have to say about that? <laughs> that's pretty much all I have to say about that. Um, it happened. It's there. It looks great. The end. <laughs> yeah. I did um watch Voyage, Last Voyage of the Demeter as well recently. And uh, yes. it's kind of a bummer because with a you know, it could have been so tense and so isolating and so like really good and it just sort of went for that glossy, like, isn't this creepy? Yeah. Like vibe. And also there was no stakes. Like I didn't give a shit about anyone on that boat. Wow, that's such a bummer. Yeah. I was really excited for that one for a while, and then yeah. started seeing some of the the chatter, and was like, eh, "I'll catch it when I catch it." Yeah. yeah. Um, the last thing I would say is that um, I am uh, about a hundred pages into Silver Nitrate Ooh. by Sylvia Moreno Garcia, which is about a um, cursed an uncompleted, unfinished horror film from the 60s. I love analog horror. <laughs> yeah. 
and um yeah it's uh it's not it hasn't been super spooky yet so i'm kind of waiting for like the horror to kick in um but the setup is intriguing enough there's possible cult activity there's nazis involved so Great. we'll see nice exciting yeah i um hopefully by the time we do our next one i'll have started whale fall you oh. about that yeah that looks good. <laughs> that book looks fun. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a lot of spooky reads lined up. Um, and I was like, I should get started on those. About that time. It's about that time? Yeah. It's also about that time to move into um, our main discussion, don't you think? I do. All right. So, you were, we were both actually kind of touching on our opening question a little bit before. Um, so let's do that properly right now. Uh, when did you first see the faculty? Um, it was like sometime in college, I would say, just because like I'd seen so many pieces of it on TV, like at different times, like the head scene always popped up. Like and it was a fear fest staple. Yeah, I mean, it was like it was a staple of stuff. So like I had seen all sorts of different pieces of it, and there was even things where it's like I saw it and didn't realize that was the faculty, you know? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it 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 truly like my <clears throat> I have memories of seeing the head scene, um, like way before ever seeing it's like sitting down and actually watching the movie. Yeah. I feel like that scene for what I don't know if it was because it's Famke Jensen's head or what, but like people like love that scene. Yeah. Um and it's it just it just feel like it was everywhere for a while. But uh yeah, this because it's a clear, you know acknowledgement of like the thing and I honestly yeah. feel like at this point like at least with that generation it's even like it's more ubiquitous to people than the one in the thing just because you know it was like a teen 90s horror movie and that like right. you know people were probably seeing that more but um it is funny. such a yeah it clearly made an impression on audiences um but yeah, I think my story, as is often the case, is pretty similar. This was this was, I think, a fear fest puzzle for me. Like I would catch large chunks of it a lot, mm -hmm. like I mentioned earlier. But um, it took a while for me to finally do like a opening credits to end credits watch, um, which I am also pretty sure must have happened one one year watching mm -hmm. the fear fest i think probably like finish some finish something like i was watching something that i chose to watch and then didn't have anything else to do and like the faculty was on next yeah so like, let me actually like watch all of the faculty and then like that's when i was sort of like oh this like makes a lot more sense and is a lot better when you watch it all <laughs> in order kind of thing and i was like this is this is a fun little little movie here. Yeah. Fun. So, so yeah, so what's the deal with the faculty? How did we end up with the faculty? 
Um, well, it was written, I don't know exactly when, but it was written pre-Scream. It's right. like people do like BCAD. Yes. Um, and it was written by David Wechter and Bruce Kimmel. Um, and couldn't they couldn't find any buyers for it. Um, and then Scream happens and, you know, like with, um, you know, what you did last summer and Scream 2 and all these other movies, like people are tripping over themselves to like quickly produce these like teen horror films. Yeah. So Miramax purchased the screenplay, but called in Kevin Williamson um, to basically rewrite it. And yeah. he rewrote it to the point that he is the only screenplay credit. Um, yeah. He changed the characters. He switched up the dialogue. Um, Wechter and Kimmel both have story credits, but it is, at this point, Williamson's script. Yeah. Um, Williamson was also supposed to direct it, but um, he was in the midst of directing Teaching Miss Tingle, so Robert Rodriguez, the natural second choice, <laughs> was brought in to direct. That is kind of funny, isn't it? Because, like, you think about Robert Rodriguez at this point in the 90s, right? Where he's like, yeah. he's he's gotten attention because he's mm-hmm. he did he's done El Mariachi and then Desperado, um, which you know that that was big, and then from Dust Till Dawn, which is horror, but like really grown up horror. And so then then like picking him for this, I think, is a very odd choice. Um, and then really odd because then the, I believe the next movie he does after this is Spy Kids. I honestly I thought about that this time around watching it because of the Dimension logo because I associate it so much with Spy Kids that I'm like oh yeah remember that like you know and I believe it's like the other you know like Machete and the other ones are also I think they're also Dimension Um, I think so well because Machete it takes place in the Spy Kids universe his uncle Machete is in fact Machete Um, and of course Machete kills yes (laughs) um but uh yeah it's just such a like a funny jump knowing what we know now to go from williamson to robert rodriguez but um you know as we know they've somewhat worked together in some capacity before since robert rodriguez um was the director of (laughs) stab (laughs) yes yes i feel like this is like like this has sort of been like a strange theme of ours this year because we talked about Scream 2 mm-hmm. back in March. We did I Know What You Did Last Summer in July. And this is all the same area. You know, we're talking about a lot of the same people. A lot of all of this is sort of like a response to Scream. Um, and yeah, these this team, I think, sounds interesting on paper, but it, it works really well. Um, like both of them, like Williamson's style, I feel like obviously comes through really strongly in the writing and then like Rodriguez's campiness, I think serves like how the film is presented. So like it ended up being a good team, I think. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it's just, it's good. Like, you know, and it's like, you can feel kind of the Rodriguez stuff in it, but I appreciate that um, I feel like this almost shows his range that he can do these like kind of goofy teen horror films and then also do like yeah. Chete. <laughs> I, 
I wish, yeah, I wish that he, I wish he would do something like this again, honestly. He's, like, really fallen, like, deep into, like, green screen world. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, I don't know. It's, like, I wish, well, there, I think there's many reasons a movie, like, The Faculty doesn't really happen anymore. But yeah. I'm glad it, it happened in 1998. Um and they were expecting it to be about as big as Scream, which was interesting. Well, and it's funny that they thought that when we get to the release and their choice is there. <laughs> ah, really odd. Um, but they were definitely looking for that same kind of success. They, you know, wanted to find like all the hot young stars to cast in the movie. Um, our girl, also, who's been talked about a lot this year, Sarah Michelle Geller was considered. Mm-hmm. Um, for do you know what role she was? I'm assuming Delilah, right? I assume it was Delilah, just because Charisma Carpenter was also. I think she was actually Charisma Carpenter was offered the part of Delilah, um, oh, wow. and she turned it down because she thought it was too close to her character in Buffy. But the reason I think that that. Sarah Michelle Gellar was probably offered Delilah or like asked to come in to read for it is because Sarah Michelle Gellar in Charisma, like originally when she tried out for Buffy, she auditioned for Charisma Carp, the character that Charisma Carpenter ultimately ended up playing. And Charisma Carpenter tried out for Buffy. It's kind of a weird, like, it's opposite. Like, um, how Courtney Cox originally auditioned for Rachel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes me think that she probably, plus, you know, the Delilah character is like, very much at that time in Sarah Michelle Gellar's wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, so I assume she said no because of scheduling conflicts with Buffy, but it's also entirely possible that she just felt it was too similar to a lot of the other horror um, sort of characters that she was playing at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we can talk more about the character a little bit later. Delilah is so so interesting yeah which makes it a bummer that sarah michelle geller turned it down just because i feel like with these characters sarah michelle geller just brings such like interesting vibes and and interesting points of views to these like what are ultimately the same type of you know horror heroine that she's playing um across a lot of different films so i feel like with how the character is interesting already on paper it would have been cool to to see that Like, could you imagine, like, Sarah Michelle Gellar within two years, Cece Cooper, Helen Shivers, and Delilah? Which and is probably husband. why it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, like, that would have been a lot for the gays. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jessica Alba also considered for Delilah. Um, okay. Obviously did not get it. Um, there's some other goofy stuff, though, in the, the casting. Kadada Jones... Yeah. mystery character just a whole ass character in the movie uh the character's name was venus right yeah yeah um she's in the trailer like i think she's on some of the original posters even and she's in their dumb little tommy hill figure as that they Dad, were yeah contractually obligated to do after the movie came out yeah and then <laughs> they're like Hmm. <laughs> she vanishes from the movie. She appears in one shot 
her, her oh, character yeah, made one shot in like a group shot where they're yeah. all like, the bug in the science the room. Science room, right? Science lab. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. Crazy, right? Um and kind of like sad and gross. Yeah, not really sure why there's like not any acknowledgement or like explanation for why her her character was cut, but um, but yeah, I mean, they had mostly unknowns at the time. We look at it now and we're like, oh we my God. All of these people. Yeah. yeah. But at the time, they were pretty much all unknowns, except for Elijah Wood, who was known for his work as a kid. Um, so he was a little bit, you know, of a, of a known guy. But right. you know, nobody knew who Josh Hartnett was at the time. Um, Clea Duvall was not yet, you know. Right. Clear of all. Um, so it's interesting. And, um, you know, some notes about uh, casting stuff and, and that sort of thing uh, later on in terms of, like, where these actors ended up. Some yeah. directly as a result of this film. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we can talk about it again later. But this proved to be quite the year for Josh Hartnett. Yeah. Um. Oh, yeah, I just saw it. Yes, and uh, the Summer Phoenix, the youngest of the Phoenix siblings. I believe she's the youngest. She is the youngest. Yeah. Um, is the fuck you credited as the fuck you girl? Is yeah. Her character. In the um, beginning, there's a second fuck you girl. Um, I believe, but fuck you girl one is her official designation. I believe. With somebody else, I forget who put. You have it down there later. Who plays the fuck you guy? But he was in a couple. He was in like House of Wax and a couple other things. Yeah, um, John Abraham. Yes. Yeah, who's like, yeah, he's like kind of, he's done a fair amount um, since this movie as well. So, yeah, it's 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 interesting. I I don't know if it's part of what has like helped this movie become a cult classic, um, or or just it is what it is. But like. It is fun to watch this movie now and be like, I know what like all of you ended up doing. Yeah. I know. I'm watching Elijah Wood and thinking about him in season two of Yellow Jackets. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe it was while he was filming this, he was on set when he got the news that he won the part of Frodo. Yeah, he it was actually like while filming this while filming this, he that he like became aware of like auditions and stuff he you know read for Frodo I think sent in a tape um and ended up being one of like only two American actors <laughs> three American actors cast uh in the main cast of that movie pretty wild yeah he's such a I guess this is more for roll call so I'll save it <laughs> uh so yeah, by all accounts, though, um, this was a pretty um, easy production. Uh, it was also like apparently a pretty fun production. Um, Jordana Brewster has talked in a couple of interviews about um, the like great vibes on set and how much she enjoyed making the film. Um, they did, I guess, even at the time, think it was going to be. Um, you know, really huge, even while they were making it, uh, mm -hmm. a la Scream, but it didn't quite pan out that way. She's, 
she was like, oh, it was sort of the inverse of like, you know, Fast and the Furious, which, you know, I thought was fun, but no one would care about. And then that became this huge thing. Yeah. Um, and Clay Duvall has talked a lot about how fun the atmosphere on the set was. You know, they were doing a lot of night shoots. And so it felt like, mm-hmm. I guess, they were kind of like in their own world. She said Robert Rodriguez was amazing as a director. Um, he had like all this energy. He let her operate the camera sometimes. And so apparently it was, it was great to, to make the movie. Shot, you had some notes about this. They shot out of Texas, I believe. Yes. Texas the, standing in for Ohio. Uh, yeah, the film is set in Ohio. Um shooting all kind of all over it looks like austin lockhart dallas san marcos lockhart high school and austin high school were used for um the fictional harrington high um austin high school huh was the high school of george w bush's children his daughters yeah i don't think they were there at the time <laughs> yeah i was like not sure how old they were but but at some point yeah Huh. All right then. And oh, so I guess and then and then Austin High School's football team um, were uh, stood in as extras for the Harrington High team. Yeah, and local citizens um, were ble- you know they put them in the bleachers with t-shirts and different stuff as well when they needed That's that. Right. Yeah, I like that. Uh, so another screen connection also going on in the making of the film, the score was composed by Marco Beltrami. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a good score. Um, it's like you recognize Beltrami. Weirdly though, it wasn't released until earlier this year. I did see that it wasn't available until like literally 2023. <laughs> Yeah, and I was thinking about that, and I was like, that's strange. And I'm wondering if it's because the score was overshadowed by the soundtrack for this film, which is, like, peak 90s um, and involves various tracks and covers by um, bands such as Class of 99, Creed, The Offspring, Sheryl Crow, Soul Asylum, Oasis is in there. I will say, like... They don't do needle drops like they used to. They really don't. <laughs> they really don't. Um, the, what the, what was the one I was like, oh, that's the best needle drop. Oh, the, the kids are not all right. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, that's like the one perfect instance of that song ever used. Yeah. Um, yeah, so don't know what happened with the score there, but I remember the soundtrack being, I, I remember seeing the CD for the, the soundtrack to the faculty, like, in, like, Borders. <laughs> borders! Yeah, in, like, the early 2000s. So. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, and then let's talk a little bit about special effects. Because I have some opinions. Yes, and... Yes, so I'll just I'll run through the, the list and then you tell me uh, what your thoughts are. So the creature effects and makeup were handled by KNB EFX Group, um, which was founded by apprentices, for lack of a better term, guys who worked under Tom Savini, 
Um, specifically on Day of the Dead, um, but they are most famous for their award-winning work on Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, so good for them. They've done a bunch of other, you know, horror films, but that's kind of their their big one. Um, And then, as you'll, you know, see pretty quick in this film, it's mainly CGI effects, and those were, you know, different points. I don't really know what goes into effects, but all that was handled by Hybride Technologies, Threshold Digital Research Labs, Digiscope, and Centropolis Effects. So, I think this is, you know, this wasn't a terribly expensive film. I think $15 million was their budget. Mm-hmm. Um, the CGI doesn't age well. I think it works when the alien um, is moving through the bleachers at the end. Mm-hmm. But by and large, I watched this movie now, and I'm like, mm, that would have been better if it was practical. Yeah, that would have been like uh, the head. That would have been way better practical. Yeah, yeah. It looks as fun as it is to like just picturing the little crab legs like walking yeah. buses on fire and stuff like as fun as all that is it would have been like just especially like you can't help but I mean it invites comparison to the thing obviously and like just thinking about the two like which one I find more viscerally creepy like as we know like I can't handle a lot of the body horror in the thing and part of that is because of how practical the effects are. Like, even yeah. though they're shocky, like, it's practical effects. Whereas this, it's like, yeah, okay, a CGI head with some legs, like, doesn't, yeah, like, doesn't affect me all that much. Yeah. Yeah, so that's my thing. I just feel like a lot of it would have uh, worked a bit better if it was practical. Um, yeah. Like, thinking about the, like, actual, because there is some practical effect of, like, the little bugs. Yeah. Know? And points, but like when they're swimming around in the aquarium, that's all CG. Yeah, yeah, and some, I, you know, I guess like, well, there's not a whole lot of like blood and gore in this movie. Now, the biggest parts I can think of is when he like vomits the bug into Sama Hayek's ear. Yeah, Cleo Duvall smashes her face on the the ground towards the end when yeah. she gets pulled by the alien. Um, and then um, the fingers, I guess, when he cuts off um, yeah. John Stewart's fingers with that. Which, those things scared the shit out of me in school. The paper, oh, yeah! Those things are, like, full-ass, just, like, guillotines. Our teachers always used to warn us against the the paper cutters. Um, they'd, like, watch you if you were using it. Yeah. Hey! Hey! <laughs> um, and then what I was going to say, what I do think is good... And is, I believe, all practical. Um, Mrs. Bremel, the teacher in the shower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is. Yeah, with the when her like head, her like yeah. scar falls off or whatever. I think that's good effects. Yeah. So yeah, so I think since there's ho- not a whole lot to talk about in terms of background, this it, this is a decent movie to um, take a couple minutes and walk through the plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe as we're doing that, we can um, also talk about the cast and the performances and the characters, um, because this is a true ensemble movie, and um, there are no opening credits. The ca- at the the cast at the end credits is just done in alphabetical order. Mm-hmm. So we sure. can just 
get to folks as we get to folks. Yeah. Right. Um, shall I kick us off then? Walk yeah, through. kick us off. How does how do we open with the faculty? Yeah. This is a cold open, right? Yeah, because the critic yeah. comes afterwards. So um, we're at Harrington High School um, and Principal Drake is like crushing all the hopes and dreams of the teachers and their budgets. Um, for all my teacher friends, that's probably very like, no. especially because she talks about how much all the budget has to go to their shitty football team. Um, <laughs> and poor um, Piper Laurie, she just, just wants like a little bit of money for the drama club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, you know, they all leave. Why this is at like the middle of the night in the teacher's lounge, I don't know. <laughs> but they're leaving and um, the football coach, um, well, I guess, first of all, do we want to talk about Principal Drake as all, at all? Yeah, sure. Do want to talk about her as we, she she evolves throughout the- She evolves, <laughs> yeah. Principal Drake played by B.B. Newworth. Yes, and looking foxy. Looking great. I mean, truly like, you know, the hot, like, teachers of the the 90s, the hot principal, the hot authority. Um, yeah, Principal Drake, you know, we meet her this sort of, like, little moment before bad things happen to her. Um, she, she seems like, like, she's doing what she has to do, right? Yeah. She's bound by the school board and this. Like, I don't think she necessarily wants to be making these cuts, but mm-hmm. she's also not going to, like, she's like, I don't have time for the sob story either. Yeah. You know? Um, And then I would say as of, like, once she turns and becomes, like, the villain, um, then it's, like, I don't know, like she, she becomes that, like the principal we all imagined our principals were. Yeah, yeah. Like she does that little smirk at one point when Casey's trying to like reveal the truth to the cops because she knows she's got him. She's like, she's asked that thing about the broom. Um, it's all very like campy, right? But it's yeah. like smirking at the camera, like yeah, in view of like everyone who's just like, oh, it's weird. She seems happy. Um, but yeah, so she gets got pretty quickly by, um, the coach Willis, the football coach, uh, who has been infected, um, who is played by Robert Patrick, um, he 1000 himself. Yeah. Which is a funny note because later when we meet John Stewart, his character's name is Edward Furlong, which was the name of the actor who played John Connor in T2 Judgment Day. Which, yes. you know, Patrick uh, or Patrick appears in as the T1000. So weird little definitely on purpose thing. Um, yeah. He's he like, honestly, like, I don't know too much about what else he's in, but he just really does these like authority figure um, creepy characters very well and I think that was definitely top of mind when he was cast in this like when he played yeah. the G1000 it's kind of a similar character where he's like sort of walking around as this person that the audience knows is the villain um, but he's presenting as like an upstanding authority figure in the community um, but uh, we see right away that he's you know you know exactly for what he is Um and then uh, also in this this scene, um, 
uh, what's the name of the the drama teacher? Um, Piper Laurie's character, Mrs. Olson. Mrs. Olson is also having gotten got. Um, yeah, you know, they tag team to take down Drake. Um, and you know, as we learn later, infect her with the the alien. Um, of a fun note, the I assume Principal Drake's name is a reference to the Drake equation, which is. The uh, equation okay. um, that is used to, it's like a formula for estimating how much intelligent life there could be in the universe. Yeah. Um, Just fun. A lot of, almost all of the character names are some sort of reference to sci-fi. Yeah. Because, you know, later Casey Connor, when we meet him, is yeah. last name Connor, John Connor. John um, Connor. Um, yeah, yeah, we've already sort of, like, there's already some Terminator references. The fact that they've cast Robert Patrick, you know, um, who is so good at, like, the menace of it all, but also, like, the humor. Yeah. After he's infected and he's just sort of, like, relishing in, like, what football is. Yeah, <laughs> which, like, hearing when he later is, like, you know, being a huge dick to the, the football team and the stuff he's shouting. It's like, well, I've definitely shouted that at my TV before. So I can't what? even like, I mean, I wouldn't do it at local high school students, but when he was like, you got to pick up the OB, what's the matter with you? And I'm like, yes, I've said that many times. Like you can't let that guy get to the quarterback. <laughs> anyway, um, that's the opening scene. Um, you know, we get the the title, the opening uh, title credit, and then we cut to what is, I think, supposed to be the next day. Yeah. Um, and we meet Casey Connor. We do. We meet Casey Connor, who's played by Elijah Wood. Um, like Miss Mel said, oh boy, really the only of the younger members of the cast who was um, who had like a recognizable name and face because he was a child actor. Um, still is. <laughs> still, I always just looked like a little boy. Um, and uh, Casey is very sort of um, uh, the he's an he's an outcast, right? He's a nerd, though. He's um, we are given to understand that he's like kind of geeky and uh, doesn't have a ton or uh, or any friends really. Um, and he's arriving for another day at school. Um, he, there's some casual bullying that goes on. Uh, he at least is like on conversational terms with, uh, fellow student Delilah Prophet, played by, uh, played by Jordana Brewster. Because she is the editor of the school newspaper and he is the photographer. Yes. It's also made clear to us that Casey has a little bit of a crush on Delilah. Right. Um, anything we want to say about Wood or Brewster in terms of performance? Um, I mean, Elijah Wood's fantastic. I mean, this is like at his peak of playing these like hapless, seemingly vulnerable um you know, lead care like shouldn't be the lead, but is the lead. Um, he's great. He's a sweet little guy. He continues to be a sweet little guy, even though he plays a psychopath and so much. <laughs> often, actually. Um, 
So like him a lot. Uh, Jordana Brewster, I think, is you know very good in this. Like I said, I would have loved to have seen Sarah Michelle Gellar if this was the part she was up for. But I think Jordana Brewster, like, definitely still, um, you know, is aware of what's on in the text and like is willing to like engage with like okay yeah like there's fun levels to this and you know like it's not just you know for maybe the the brief moment where we meet her she's like these are Estee Lauder lips and you know yeah. her boyfriend comes up to try and kiss her and stuff and she like seems like kind of just that very prototypical like 90s popular bully girl um but she very quickly like is not that um and I think it's because she and Elijah Wood like play off of each other very well uh as well but um and I feel like with Delilah specifically I'm like this is the most like believable like character to me I was like I feel like I was like yeah I recognize you and like people I went to high school with yeah um I think all of the high school characters like they get like there's a lot of subversion of high school tropes with all of them but I think we see it the most with Delilah while still making her the most like real. Um, I don't know. I just kept thinking, I was like, yeah, I feel like I heard actual people I went to high school with, like say some of the things that she says in the movie. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And she's sort of the first one we start to see subvert some of like the tropes of her character um, while still being like, She's, I don't know, she's really complicated because she says some really mean things to Stokely. Mm -hmm. um, well, like, yeah, and that's, like, you know, an interesting thing that comes up later with, like, <clears throat> there are parts of this movie where it is very of its time. Yeah, the homosexual yeah. character is one of them. Um, and the irony of that entire thing, not lost on me, we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> but, um... Yeah, like, I feel like it's also is, like, indicative of, like, how, like, fucking mean kids were in the 90s, or at least in um, media. Like, anything you watch that's, like, a teen, you know, film, like, the characters who are meant to be the bully characters are, like, really mean. Like, it's not even that they're, you know, like, I feel like you look at the Stephen King stuff and, like, his bullies are physically violent and that sort of thing, whereas here you just get, like the brutal like emotional harassment and abuse yeah. um and it was so direct in the 90s right yeah. like she is actively like saying harmful things to stokely um whereas like in a couple years when we transition into like the mean girls era it's more like veiled and backstabby and like it's so interesting like how bullying changes in teen movies and just a handful of years yeah uh but anyway yeah so we sort of and we literally get basically like a montage at this point right and as we're here at the beginning of the school day we're meeting all of our other characters um that are going to make up our main sort of coterie and that includes um delilah's boyfriend stan rosado mm -hmm. played by sean hotosi who is uh as of this morning the um captain of the football team we also meet um zeke taylor nope zeke tyler uh josh hartnett's yes character. it's you want it to be taylor i do want it to be taylor but it's not <laughs> better name for the character why is it tyler i don't know tyler spelled like taylor missing a word or a letter rather yeah and zeke is the school um 
like burnout drug dealer like mm -hmm. stereotype. Um, we actively see him sort of like engaging in some of that this morning. He has a homemade drug that he calls scat. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that he sells inside of um, ballpoint pens or whatever. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Like empty ballpoint pens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then we also meet um, the goth girl outcast, uh, Stokely Mitchell, played by Clay Duvall. And um, she's, uh, she's you know, she's the one, she's not friends with anyone. She's perceived to be like... She's like the alt girl. Yeah, the angry <laughs> alt girl. Um, and and that sort of thing. And in, and in here as well, there are some other um, side characters that come about. And this is also when we meet uh, the new girl at school, uh, Southern Belle, Mary Beth Louise Hutchinson, uh, played by Laura Harris. Mm -hmm. Which, it's funny that she played, and I know like actors can do whatever, that she's playing the Southern Belle and she's like very much a Canadian actress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She was on, did you ever... Was on that like Nickelodeon like soap drama thing that was like popular like like right before we would have watched it, but they would sometimes do reruns. I feel like I remember like seeing her in that. I do not, but I I believe you. Yeah. She also like really reminds me. I was trying to figure out what her character reminded me of because maybe it was something in Buffy. Like it was definitely something of this time. But there was, like, another very similar, like, Southern Belle character who was actually, like, a villain um, in something. I feel like it was a Buffy. Like, there was, like, a vampire who had this vibe, maybe. Mm. But, like, she really reminds me of whatever this... I cannot picture where it was. But I was like, yeah, there was very much, like... It was in some sort of horror or horror-adjacent media where there is a blonde southern accented villain who's basically the same thing but i was really trying to place it watching it again this time i don't know it's gonna hit you at like the worst time yeah and then i'll get a text and then <laughs> yeah and then you know around we'll go and around we'll go yeah. yeah, Clea Duvall, though, introduced in this. Um, not quite Clea Duvall as we know her now, which makes this whole situation very ironic. Yeah. Yeah, so what's interesting, as we learn about this character, uh, everyone at school understands Stokely to be a lesbian. Mm -hmm. And we it's also implied that that's why she doesn't have any friends, because it's the 90s and homophobia. Um, what we find out actually like kind of early right because it's when she's talking to mary beth mary beth is, is sort of being like oh hey like that's cool with me and so he's yeah. like i'm not a lesbian i just tell people that so they'll leave me alone yeah um and of course as the film goes on we learn that stokely is attracted to stan yeah very breakfast clubby very breakfast club i mean they're all each of them is someone from the Breakfast Club. The nerd, the misfit, the prom the queen, jock. the jock. Yeah. You know, the drug dealer. Yeah. And Mary Beth is the outsider. 
for very specific reasons. She doesn't mm -hmm. fit into one of the Breakfast Club models. Yeah. Um, we also, during this montage, we meet the remaining faculty members we haven't yet, uh, including Selma Hayek as the school nurse, Nurse Harper, I believe. Who, ironically, is down with quite the cold, but is saving her um, days. vacation days for when, or her sick days for when she feels well. <laughs> she feels well. Um, we also meet Famke Jansen as Miss Burke. Mm -hmm. Unclear what she teaches. Um, she's like or a substitute for somebody. Substitute for somebody. She's very meek and mild-mannered. She has a very strange interaction with Zeke, where she, like, on principle, tries to catch him out for drug dealing, and he is, like, mocking her and not respecting her authority. Um, and then we meet... Uh, Daniel Von Bargen as uh, Mr. Tate, um, who is the history teacher, I think. Um, yes. yes. His name, actually, according to the credits, is John Tate. So big year for John Tates. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then finally, uh, John Stewart is there playing Mr. Furlong, the... Um, Biology teacher? Science, some kind. Some kind. Science-y. Um, yeah, and so that's our cast and our characters. We'll talk more about them as necessary. Um, yeah, and so all this is going on. It's the beginning of the school day. Casey, uh, Elijah Wood's character, ends up finding something very strange while i guess in it, it's he's in gym class or no he's taking pictures of he, out on the football field yeah yeah um yeah so he finds some he finds a, a weird goopy little creature on the football field while he's like doing his like picture taking thing and he brings it to mr furlong um, the science teacher who is like all he's like, oh my god, you've discovered a new species, which is like, okay, relax. <laughs> but um <laughs> you know, they they poke it, they prod it, they put it in the aquarium, it kind of comes to life. Um, it's our first hint of like the sort of um mechanics of the creature. Um Mr. Furlong does get bit, like really. Like, it's a tiny bite, but there's a lot of blood on his hands yeah. when he pulls it out. Um, but he says he's going to um, send the sample to, like, the local university to have them look at it since they don't know what it is. Um, and everyone's just fine with this. He's, like, way too chill when that thing bites him. Yeah, he's like, yeah, it's fine. It's like, eh, I don't know. It's like, are you just trying to look tough in front of your students? Yeah. I don't think they think you're tough. No. But um, anyway, so that they're like, okay, that's cool. Um, and then Delilah and Casey, um, you know, intrepid reporters, <laughs> um, decide to hide out in the teacher's lounge, um, hunting for a story. And this is where they see, um, for the first time, Coach Willis comes in um, along with uh, Miss Olson. And they confront uh, Sama Hayek's character, um, 
and have this thing where he they subdue her and then he vomits one of these like he these weird bugs into her ear, which is actually you know minus the part that the bug does look CGI, but you know the brief second we see it, like it is a cool effect and creepy and and it's a, the effects and it's, on his face are cool. Yeah, and it's effective. Like you feel gross yeah. watching. Yeah. Anyway, so you know. Casey and Delilah think, oh, my God, they murdered her because afterwards she's just sitting there like covered in blood and, you know, looks dead. Her eyes are open. So they fight their way out. They, um, you know, head out, get help, come back with um, Casey comes back with his parents. Delilah, like, goes to ground or something. She's immediately like, (laughs) they're after me. She abandons Casey in a way that no one has ever abandoned anyone before. Yeah. Um, but Casey comes back with his parents and the police and says, you know, this happened. At this point, Coach Willis and Miss Olsen and um, Principal Drake have, like, cleaned up, covered it up. You know, they're playing, like, the very nice teachers. Like, oh, no, he was just confused. They pull out, like, a um, CPR dummy and claim that's what he saw. You know, the police are dicks about it. His parents are dicks about it. Um, his dad the nurse is fine yeah the nurse is fine yeah Um, and as a result of this casey is grounded um yeah like super grounded like they take away all his they take away his phone his internet his music his dad even takes away his porns under his mattress that's wild um you know what's so funny though his dad played by christopher mcdonald one of the Mm -hmm. great like character actors for douchebags of our time yeah um when like the next scene or whatever when casey like climbs or falls out of his window when he sees the teachers in the rain and then his dad comes out and is like what the hell are you doing yeah his dad is still holding the porn (laughs) (laughs) i just thought that like i caught that this last time and i was like oh that's like a fun little dumb thing put in there um but yeah, all that to say, no one believes them. Or no one believes Casey, rather. Because Delilah's yeah. like, fuck off. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he gets dropped off at school the next day by his dad, who's just like, you go to school and you come home and you don't get any internet or porn. Um, and um, yeah, so he tries to, you know, he tries to say to Delilah, like, hey, we saw some crazy shit. Delilah has like gone full witness protection. <laughs> She's wearing glasses. She's like in disguise because she's like, they're going to be after me. Um, Eventually, he, Delilah, Stan, and Stokely all end up in um, the science lab for various reasons. Um, Yeah, I guess parallel to this, we should say um, Stan has quit the football team Mm -hmm. because he wants to uh, focus on academics. And he's tired of sort of being perceived as like a one, a yeah, a dumb jock. Um, this has sort of intrigued Stokely, who it's implied is, has already maybe been attracted to Stan. Stan and Delilah, uh, who are officially a couple, this has put them on the rocks because Delilah, you know, she's like the head cheerleader dates the captain of the football team. If you're not the captain of the football team, what is this? Um, and Stan, while in the shower after his, I guess his last football practice, yeah, um, 
is sort of he's not attacked but like uh another teacher mrs brummel stumbles into the shower Mm -hmm. is like actively decomposing almost before and she like dies and he's like what the fuck yeah. Um, so that is going on. Stokely is also noticing weird things going on around the school, particularly that a couple members of the faculty seem to be consuming a lot of water. Yes. Um, so all that's going on, and then yes, they they're they're all in the lab. Yeah. And then what? Um. So you know, Casey is like, "Yo, like this is happening." Um. Stan thinks they're crazy. Delilah's like, like, I don't know. It was weird shit, but like, it's not, I don't know. She's just really does not want to be a part of this. Zeke and Mary Beth come in because they were like pawing around for ingredients for his little meth lab or whatever in his basement and also like making out. Um, and while they're in there and like Zeke and everyone's making fun of Casey um, for being like a nerdy conspiracy theorist weirdo, Mr. Furlong comes in and he's infected. He's, he immediately tries to attack them. Um, this is another, like, one of the better effects is Zeke shoves one of his um, oh, yeah. drug pens into his eye. Um, that is, that is. And it's like, you know, it's very practical. It's in there. He's like bubbling up and frothing and falls over and dies. And all of them run away um, back to Zeke's house. Mm -hmm. They are avoiding like police barricades that are up because they're starting to think because they're like starting to notice that like, oh, the other students are getting infected. Like a lot of them are sort of turning on them. Um, The teachers all seem to be infected as well. so they're in Zeke's basement where his drug lab is, and they do some tests and determine that the creature needs water. Like, really, like, it, it, it infects humans because they're so full of water and so made of water, so they need that to be able to replicate. So they, like, suck people full of their liquids, and then they die, and then they move on to the next host. Um, which gives Zeke the idea to test to make sure none of them are infected um, by trying his little drugs. Another reference to the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens when when they do that? Yeah, so one by one, everyone is made to take a pen and snort Zeke's drug, which we also learn at this point is basically just caffeine pills that he has crushed up yeah. and done some stuff with. And it's kind of like, oh, the bad boy's not really that bad. Yeah. Um, but it's diuretics or yeah, it'll dry you out. It'll dry you out. Um, Casey goes first and he gets the giggles. Um, He's tweaking. Then, let him tweak. Let him tweak. Then I believe Stan and he kind of joins in with the, the giggles. Yeah. Uh, Zeke. Zeke takes his, he resists at first. He's like, I don't use my own stuff. Mm-hmm. But then he does do it because Stan forces him at one point. Um, and then it's down to, uh, no, and then and then Stokely does it. And it, it just seems to sort of give her a headache, but she's fine. And then it's between Mary Beth and um Delilah, both of whom are like, oh, the other one. And then Zeke is like, okay, well then you'll do it together. And so they do, and well. Delilah doesn't. She reacts because mm-hmm. she, it turns out Delilah is 
has been infected. Um, this was something I wasn't I made a note to ask you. When do you think Delilah got infected? Um, I saw a couple of things on the internet of people trying to figure out when it happened because mm-hmm. it could have been before she even got there. Um, yeah, you know, it could have been sometime after we meet her and then, you know, sometime off camera. Um, you know, I don't know if it really makes sense with like the text of the script, but to me, I always thought of her as like being infected before she got there. Yeah. Um, and just from the beginning, like, you know, maybe something similar, ha- you know, they, they talk about like this happening and like purposefully in the middle of nowhere, like that's part of Casey's theory is that, you know, or- they want to take over the world because they want to sort of like infect small town America rather than just like bombing Washington or something like that. Um, so it's possible since she comes from a tiny Southern place, maybe that's part of it. Who knows? But I always thought of it as she was infected before she got there. Yeah. Okay. I think that works for me as well. Um, so yeah. And so this is sort of like the first big shock for our heroes. Right. Um, and they fight off Delilah. She escapes, as do they, like separately, um, the rest of them. But it results in almost all of Zeke's drugs being destroyed, um, aside from like a small handful that they're able to get away with. Um, and, you know, sort of, you know, we had this moment where everyone was sort of like parsing out what was going on. Stokely reveals herself to be a pretty big sci fi fan. Yeah, uh, like, and, like weirdly knowledgeable. Yeah, like she honestly, she reminded me a little bit of um their their exchange when he's like going over his theories of um Randy and uh, CC in the film class where they're yeah. just trying to outdo each other with their like knowledge. Yeah, because that's kind of what happens here. Only instead of with horror, it's with sci-fi. I think she's definitely meant to be the Randy character. Um, I think Kevin Williamson was just feeling that sort of guide vibe. Um, What was I saying? Uh Uh-oh. Did I lose my... Yeah, so, yeah, so my, my, I'm of the opinion that she was infected pre-getting there, and it was part of the the deal, but regardless, the drug test reveals that she is, in fact, an alien, and there's a fun little um, tidbit, like, earlier in the film, they're talking about, like, like, alien, like, the aliens having a master or something like that, and I think she says queen, and, you know, it's kind of an early hint that she's, you know part of the part of the bullied breed well even in this scene like when they're making them take the test like when you know now like there's a look like mary beth gives delilah a look where she's basically like look you're gonna have to take this hit for me yeah like i can't die because then we'll all die like you have to do it um and then so you know delilah takes the drug or whatever half takes the drug, whatever, she gets exposed. Um, Everyone flees. Most of the drugs get destroyed. It's not good. 
but they do have enough left to sort of enact what Stokely and um, Casey have put together as like the theory and the possible plan, which is that these species could be um, universally destroyed if they kill the master, if they kill the queen. Mm -hmm. So um, they assume that the queen um, is Principal Drake. Yeah, she's the head of the school. She was the head of the faculty. That makes sense to us. Um, Obviously, they all know that she was acting weird. So they're like, okay, well, um, we have to get to her now because not only is she and all of the faculty and the school who are mostly infected by this point at the football game, but so is most of the town. Their small town is there because it's a football town, which Mm -hmm. we know from the cold open. So that's that's what you do. Everyone essentially is is there. Um, I I don't think it's homecoming. Like I don't think it's a special football game. It's just that it's it's like in Ohio. I feel like yes. there's like certain places where it's like that's their whole their whole world. That's, that's the culture. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, okay, well, we we got to go. So they go to the football game. Um, you know. As, the, as they know, all, pretty much everyone in the school except for them is infected at this point, including the new captain of the football team, Usher. Usher. <laughs> <laughs> so weird and so underused. Yeah. He appears earlier in the film as one of Casey's bullies and appears, I think, when he sort of, when it's clear that he's going to get the job over Stan, when Stan's like, yeah. I'm done with football. And then... Next time we see him, he's already like been aliened and yeah. And I like that little moment because Dan sort of like tells him to lay off. Um, and it's like it's it's that subversion, you know, that happens a lot with this movie of the tropes, like where we would expect Stan as the jock to be dumb and cruel and you know have a huge inflated ego but like he makes this decision that he doesn't like that he wants to put academics before athletics and like he doesn't really actively bully Casey um by all accounts he seems to be kind of a nice guy and he you know he's basically going through like an existential crisis yeah um it's like yeah some some of times even the jock is is okay you know um anywho they they trick well no they don't actually they don't actively trick her i think they're all they're hanging out in the gym trying to figure out what to do and principal drake (laughs) goes up there yeah they have like a vague trap in place and they like net her up in the volleyball net (laughs) um and there's a slight moment of hesitation where like what if we're wrong right but then they, um, Zeke shoots her because he has a gun, because he's a drug dealer. And then they dump, or Mary Beth dumps the, the drug on her and she dries up. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, yay, we did it. Everything's great. Um, and they're like, okay, but now we have to test it, though. Um, and so Stan agrees that he's going to, go talk to the football team and the coach who are all just standing on the field after the game in the middle the middle of a race you know. <laughs> and he's like i'm gonna go see if it worked and they're not aliens anymore and it's like i feel like 
It's pretty clear that they're still aliens. <laughs> um, but he does. He goes out there. And um, it turns out they still are aliens. And then he comes back. And he's like, let me in, let me in. Like, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. Stokely wants to let him in because they've been getting close. And mm-hmm. Zeke, in case you're like, you can't. We don't know. Yeah. Do the um, classic. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and it turns out they're right because Stan has become infected now. Mm-hmm. And he says it's too late and they're all going to come for you. Which is true. Um, and so they're trapped in the school. They think they don't have any drugs left. But Zeke says, oh, there are still a little bit left in my car. And so Zeke and Casey decide, okay, well, we're going to do some sort of diversion in the parking lot to get the last remaining drugs. Mm-hmm. So they go out there. And then what happens? So Casey is going to, like, divert the infected students while Zeke heads to his car. And Miss Burke... Um, shows up who earlier in the film had like really like verbally harassed Zeke after um, that's right she became infected yeah so earlier in the film when she's still like the meek substitute she goes up to Zeke and she's like hey you can't be selling drugs and porn in the parking lot um and he's like basically like fuck off um later after she becomes infected and sort of you know, she's more, you know, she's, her glasses are off. She's wearing revealing clothes. Like, down. Yeah. She's like very assertive. She goes up to him in the middle, like in front of everybody and just fucking like, like reams him. Like, you know, it's like your parents hate you and don't love you. You're a terrible person. You suck. <laughs> um, so they've got a little beef, um, but like sexual tension beef, that kind of thing. But she shows up and she's obviously infected and they have a sort of like little standoff. Her head, he, 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 her head gets cut off. Right. And then it very famously pops out little legs and she's, and there's like a bus on fire or something. Like there's like, like there's shit happening. There's there's like a whole chase sequence with Yeah. Um, But she, you know, scuttles away with her head. I don't know how any of these people show up alive later, by the way. That's the weirdest thing to me is that like, these people are fine after this. I guess it's because like damage to them as aliens like wasn't permanent unless it was like the drug unless they get dried out. Right, because them. some of them are dead and some of them well, are not. <laughs> they say in like the news coverage like some faculty members like disappeared or died or whatever, yeah. but not all of them. Yeah, I don't know. It's bizarre. Um, but anyway, while that's going on, Casey and Stokely, um, you know, learn Mary Beth is the actual alien queen, the whole switcheroo with the drugs. They take off. Um, Stokely gets her head fucking cracked open um, when she gets, you know, during this chase scene. Um, Zeke and Casey are able to make it away and hide out in um, the locker room while Mary Beth's sort of stalking around, you know, going in between alien and human form. Um, And she kind of does her monologuing at this point where she explains, you know, the aliens come from like a dying planet and, you know, they want to take over and, you know, the classic stuff. Um, And there's like the sort of final battle between her and Zeke and Casey 
Um, and then this is honestly something that always like flipped me out about retractable bleachers at like schools and stuff. But um, Casey is able to get her sort of wedge behind the retractable bleachers in the gym, gets her in the eye with like the last drug pen that they have. Um, and, you know, they regroup and everyone for the most part is alive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we get an epilogue. Uh, we flash forward one month and we get sort of like a brief overview of uh, what's going on with everyone. Uh, Zeke has now joined the football team. <laughs> doesn't seem in a, his arc, but whatever. It really doesn't. I don't necessarily love that. Um, Delilah and Casey are going out. I also have questions if Delilah would actually choose Casey. No, I feel like Casey and Stokely made more sense. Yeah, yeah. But um, they're going out. Casey is has sort of become the face of the strange events that happened mm-hmm. over the course of the film. And um, like we see Delilah bring him various like publications to He's on Time Magazine. There's another one in there. And then there's also the school newspaper. Some people think he's telling the truth and he's a hero. Some people think he's a hoax. Uh, We see that uh, various news stations are still covering the events of what happened at the school. They're like, what really happened here? Was it an alien invasion? Where are some missing faculty members? Um, So presumably some of them are dead. Coach Willis is still there. Miss Burke is still there, and maybe fucking Zeke. Yeah, because she like waves to him seductively at football practice. Yeah, <laughs> um, and so nineties and so deeply inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then of course, uh, Stan and Stokely are now going out, and Stokely has sort of. Um, you know, had her like makeover like Ali Sheedy in the Breakfast Club, and she's mm-hmm. not a soft girl anymore. I think she's wearing a pink sweater even um, at the end. And so, for the most part, everything is sort of chill, and that's where the movie closes. Um, it's vic- victory for for Earth, yeah, as it were. Um, yeah, the ending is very much trying to do Breakfast Club, but, like, without any, like, trying to do back Breakfast Club with, like, yeah, this is what Breakfast Club did, so we have to do it, as opposed to, like, what made sense. In- yeah. Um, so. Yeah. So that's, that's the film. Um, any other, like, fun tidbits we didn't get a chance to mention, um, so far in our discussion um a couple that i mean obviously we mentioned you know the other weird thing about this clue duvall character pretending to be a lesbian is that clue duvall is actually a lesbian right she was not out at the time no but much later yeah very famous lesbian though so yes very interesting um yeah and for the character to pretend and then not be yeah yeah um, some other interesting things when um, we're in the bathroom at the beginning and, um, you know, Zeke's selling his drugs and um, Casey's, like, dealing with his fucked up nose. There's graffiti on the wall reading Tito and the Tarantula, um, which is 
uh, a collaborator of Rodriguez's, Tito uh, Lariva, that's his band. Um, so that's fun. Um, Rodriguez's sister is the tattooed girl that Mary Beth asked for directions from very early when she says, where's the office? The one who points sort of just haphazardly behind her, that's uh, Rodriguez's sister. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a fun one. So Josh Hartnett, as we know, was filming Halloween H2O at the same time. And his yeah. hair in both movies looks fucking nuts. And it's because yeah. he was cutting his own hair on purpose. Yeah, he was cutting his own hair because he, you know, who knows exactly why. He, he said he did it for character reasons, but it got so bad to the point where he almost got kicked. Like, he almost got fired from H2O because they were so, no, from H2O because they were so pissed at him for continually doing this to his hair. Um, And it's in both movies, he has insane hair. Michael Myers is dead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that's why he looks insane. It's because he was doing it. That's completely insane. Um, One kind of weird thing, too, early in the movie when Zeke is selling porn and drugs out of his car, he's, like, pulls out a VHS tape and he's like, yeah, Niff Campbell and Jennifer Love Hewitt, like, full frontal or whatever. This is a reference to Party of Five, which both actresses were in. There was no nudity because Niff Campbell did not appear nude until 2004's When Will I Be Loved. Um, She did seemingly do a nude scene in a previous movie in 2003, but it was a body double. Um, and this is also a reference to Scream as well, in, in some capacity as well. But I just thought it was a, like a, it was like a, it was kind of like in Scream 2 where they make the joke about um, Gail's nudes leaking and it's Jennifer Aniston's body. Yeah. <laughs> um, Kevin Williamson yeah. likes those little tidbits. Um, it also, it also could work as a character thing. Like Zeke is lying. Yeah. You know, to sell this, you know, this tape. Yeah. Like, um, the other fun tidbit is Famke Jensen has never actually seen this movie. <laughs> never seen it. Um, she says partially because she didn't want to see, like, I don't know, and maybe she's referring to the fact that it really hints that her character and, and Zeke are fucking at the end, but she mentions not wanting to see, like, like, what happens to her character, basically. Like, she said something in that capacity. So I don't know if that was it or she just didn't want to see what it looked like when her head got cut off. Or maybe watching yourself get decapitated is a lot. But regardless, she's never actually seen the movie in full. Okay, and that's her choice. Yeah. She's, um, she's She's so funny in this movie, like, in both, like, versions of Miss Burke. Um, yeah. I like Famke Jansen. Well, because they do the thing where they're like, we're going to hide that this is a really hot person with glasses. Yeah. And this never works, but... They also do... Well, and it never works with her because she's a particularly sort of beautiful actress. Um, yeah. Like, they they do that with her a little bit as Jean Grey in X-Men. Um, yeah. When, especially when she's introduced in the first one. And it's like, no, Jean Grey's hot. Like, yeah. just let her be hot. Yeah. Um... That's funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's there's not a ton out there about the um, production. It seemed to be pretty. I think it was pretty smooth and like yeah. they all seem to really enjoy working together. Yeah. So so the faculty releases. On December 25th, 1998. 
It debuts number five at the box office that weekend <sighs> behind newcomers Patch Adams and Stepmom in the number one and number two spots. And then Holdovers, You've Got Mail, and The Prince of Egypt in the number three and number four spots that were both in their second week. Not a great opening. Uh, the film's release on Christmas Day when audiences are more likely to watch traditional dramas or feel-good films, was very much considered a detrimental choice by the studio. I don't remember the last time a horror film that wasn't about Christmas came out around Christmas. It, I, and honestly, I feel like because of what happened here, like, a lot of studios took note. Um, and so, like, yeah. this is like a summer movie. Yeah, it is definitely a summer movie. Uh, late summer, if you really want to be on theme. Um, but yeah, it, December 25th is bonkers. Yeah. What are you thinking? Yeah. Um, so strange. Uh, it doesn't, financially, it doesn't flop. Uh, it grosses $40.3 million against its $15 million budget. So that is a success, but it was way below what they were projecting. And critically, it wasn't like, the runaway success that they were also anticipating, like Scream was. Um, Not that it does horrible critically. uh, Positive reviews enjoy the self-aware script and the meta humor um, that is, of course, attributed to Kevin Williamson, uh, the references to classic sci-fi and the subversive teen characters. But uh, the film does get knocked for not using um, the older actors and the faculty characters as much saying the cast was too large, which I don't necessarily agree with, um, and that the script was too earnest in portraying angsty teens while also seeking to be a parody. Take that for what you will. Yeah. I mean, I don't... I don't super jive with that because people made sort of a similar, like a lot of the big complaints about Scream 3 is that it sort of became the thing it was parroting. And I feel like that is such a subjective view on it that like, that's like, to me, that doesn't like, I think it did a good job of like doing, you know, like the fuck you girl in the beginning and like just some of the things that go on in the background and like the difference, like, I think it was fine. Like, I think it did a good job of being both a parody. Because that's the thing is, is people don't realize with parodies, like, you also have to still be presenting, you know, the thing that you're parodying to some extent. Like, it still has to be something you care about. Yes. Um, You know, and I think people go into parodies or, um, you know, spoofs and things like that and things like that. And, like, just assume it's supposed to be just straight, like, family guy comedy. And that's not it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not something I super agree with, but. I completely agree with you, Ms. Mill, and I think you're exactly right. And why that that isn't an apt critique of this movie, because I think the faculty never loses sight of what it is, but it still takes the world seriously. Right. It's not like winking at you the whole time, like a Family Guy bit would do. Yeah. Um, no, I think I think, and that's just so people like get to be so critical with parody in that way, where it's like, well, it's not a parody because it's just the thing, or people think, you know, like. I was talking about this with a friend um, specifically on an other end of the horror spectrum about um, Serbian film. Mm. And people talk about that as being like, oh, well, it's supposed to be like a commentary on that type of film. And I'm like, you can't just 
make that type of film and say and that it's, say it's a commentary. commentary. <laughs> because I'm like, no, you're just making like you're just making an extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not commentary if you just do that and say and laugh at people for going to be like, hi, you idiot, you went to go see it. Right. Like, like I don't know. No. So I feel like that's a thing, especially in horror, because there are so many types of films that do that that people just don't understand. Like, you know, Kevin Williamson really understood how to make a parody film that also was like in its own right very serious and like had a contained yeah. story. Yeah, and he did that again here. Yeah. With his rewrites, which were extensive enough that like even the original it's screenplay. Yeah. yeah. And and I've seen stuff from um the two story, you know, the original writers where they were like, Yeah, it's his movie. Like yeah. it was our idea. Um, but like, yeah, it's you're right. People are too I don't know if it's a misunderstanding of what parody is or or what, but yeah, that is a silly critique. Yeah. Uh, needless to say, um, the film has definitely become a cult classic and has been analyzed a great deal over the years. We're going to get into that in just a moment. Um, and it's sort of been like reappreciated um, from its sort of original um, mild reception in 1998. But as of now, the faculty has a 56% on Rotten Tomatoes a Metacritic score of 61, an IMDb rating of 6.6, and a letterbox rating of 3.3 out of 5. So the only one of those that I think is probably hits it pretty well is the letterboxed one. I agree, because my personal letterbox rating for the faculty is 3.5. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the rest of those I'm like, People are way too harsh on this movie. This movie. I feel like people like want it. And again, like it's just a misunderstanding of how you're supposed to like. People have an opinion of how like they think a parody should be or what they, you know. And I think that again, like that's why it's so tough with that because people are like, that's not a parody. This is a parody. Or, you know, to me, a parody should be 100% comedy and this is too serious. And, you know, I think Scream was like lightning in a bottle in a way where people until the third one, don't really get into that argument. Yeah. Um, And then I think they saw enough, like, of these very similar genre parodies that they're like, I know what that is now. I can properly critique it. And I'm like, no, you can't. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and... And there has been a lot of talk about, yeah, it's parody, but there's also a lot more going on with the faculty. Um, Of course, people are interested in how it has, how the film examines sci-fi and horror tropes with humor and cleverness. Um, We've talked a little bit about the names being references Mm -hmm. uh, to classic sci-fi and also contemporary sci-fi. You know, they're referencing Terminator and Terminator 2. Um, He must have been on a kick with that, like, that, at that time that he was doing rewrites. Like, he must, like, that must have been, like, the movie he was obsessed with. Well, I'm thinking about, you were saying you weren't sure when it was written, right? But we know that it was a couple years before they filmed it. Yeah, and Terminator 2 came out in, 92. It was 92, 91. So, yeah, yeah, that's really big. John Connor, Robert Patrick, like those movies were so fucking huge. 
Yeah. Like, that would have been on everybody's cultural radar. Yeah. Um, yeah, and of course, you know, we've talked about Miss Burke's head, you know, the the testing scene, those are all references to the thing. Obviously, the film relies heavily on the structure of invasion of the body snatchers to the point where that is a it's referenced amongst the characters. Um, Stokely talks about it. Um, and people have picked apart a lot of the other like sm smaller and subtle sci-fi references over the years. Um, but some of the other things people have analyzed about the film and written about is the portrayal of teenage alienation. Mm -hmm. um, and the film sort of juxtaposing that with an actual alien invasion and that this was done as a means to explore the societal fear of losing one's nascent individuality for the sake of protective conformity. It's interesting because sort of like thinking about Stan when he's like I'm not alien I'm discontent mm -hmm. which is a funny line and like a very like yeah. of the time 90s teen line but also like gets at the heart of like you know what the film's sort of trying to say yeah and it definitely it definitely comes through you think about um Mr. Tate has that quote in the history class about only through conformity etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm -hmm. and then in Mary Beth's monologue before she reveals herself to Stokely, it's essentially all of that. She's offering this world of no pain and no fear, um, a world where there is no difference because difference leads to, you know, outcasts and da 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 da. Um, yeah, it is this idea that I think all teenagers struggle with, like, sacrificing individuality for safety in a sense um that's essentially what this movie is about and luckily our heroes are brave enough to see that that would be a very boring world to live in yeah. um but the film has also looked at um our critics have also looked at how the film reinvents the idea of female sexuality uh, particularly through the character of Mary Beth. Mm -hmm. As she sort of transcends like the femme fatale um, stereotype to become, according to one critic, a complex imbrication of woman, alien, and power. Mm -hmm. And that this Which is we all to be. What's that? Which we all strive to be. Sure. Um, and this is visually represented to the viewer by Mary Beth being introduced to us as sweet and virginal. Uh, she's She wears florals when we first meet her. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, by the time we get to the end of the film, she reveals her true self, which is very sexual in nature. She mm -hmm. appears nude in the final confrontation. She's very confident. She's flirtatious. She borders on threatening, but it's still sort of, it's not quite as like... It's danger, but it's like sensual danger, right? Um, the uh, this sort of idea has also been um, presented that the sharp teeth of the alien species evoke vagina dentata, yeah. therefore, uh, therefore presenting a subconscious threat of castration. Mm -hmm. While uh, the alien's need for water and Mary Beth's offering to the heroes is meant to be read as a symbolic return 
to the birth waters and the safety of the womb. Nice. I think that's all sort of interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, like thinking about that stuff and the analysis of it and like looking at like the film itself, like it, it, <clears throat> it made me think about how like so many people try to really insert themes into the into their horror and that sort of thing and when they're work you know like when I read stories or people talk about like films or or, or horror stories they're writing and stuff and they're like yeah like I want to write it you know I want this is this story is supposed to be about um you know whatever pick your theme like you know they nobody went into this saying like yeah I want to write uh, I want to have this film also talk about like subversion of female sexuality and you know how that interplays with femme fatale and also symbolism of returning to like none of that was there like until after it was on the paper and on the screen and people watched it and and thought of that and i just think it's interesting because it's otherwise such like you know a schlocky fun teen horror film but you can pull so much out of it yeah which is one of the beautiful amazing things about horror like oftentimes even if, you know, imbuing those sort of things was unintentional, it's still there. It still comes through because of just sort of like the nature of what horror is as a genre and just how it, it is meant to bring subconscious fears and, you know, societal questions to to the table. Um, so yeah, who knows? Yeah, who knows? Was that Williamson's intention? He's never really commented on it. Rodriguez has never said one way or another. But I love that we can do these readings about it. I love that these analyses make a lot of sense mm -hmm. talking about them um, here and now. And I love that we can also just be like, yeah, sure, maybe. But I'm also just going to enjoy an alien teen invasion film. Right. Um, but yeah, but de definitely like this has this has gotten a lot of attention over the years, a lot of articles. Um, uh, this sort of interpretation of confronting female sexuality has also, people have used Miss Burke as an example of this as well. You know, she comes across more overtly sexual after she is infected. Um, the head scene has been linked to the Freudian Medusa and um, evoking the monstrous feminine. So that could be all sort of tied into that. Um, and then, of course, you have Casey, who is the male character that's arguably uh, the closest to um, something to his personal softer feminine side being the final character standing and the ultimate hero of the film. Um, so there might be something there as well. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's move now into one good scare, uh, which is where we each share what we find to be the most frightening moment in the film. Do you got one? I think so. I just, I go back to the, cause ear stuff freaks me out. And I think the, the ear, I don't even, you know, it's not a kill, but like the, the, the scene where um, Sama Hayek gets infected always kind of freaks me out. Cause it's like the one, one of the few uses of actual practical effects and like I hate your shit like that. Um, so I, I always found that as uh, kind of freaky. That is really freaky. Um, I always get uh, like a little like heebie-jeebie shake when 
Stan runs out to the football field to check mm-hmm. the coach, and it's you know it's it's raining, it's and it's storming, and when the lightning flashes, you see the like inner workings of the aliens mm-hmm. in the coach and the team, and like you know the teeth and the veins and stuff. That always creeps me out. As yeah, cool visual, but it's like really creepy. Cool. We, so our next segment is the view from the closet. <laughs> how we can view this film from an LGBTQ plus lens. And we've skirted a little bit. <laughs> I think you had said you had a lot to say about the one major element. Well, so, and I was actually this, you know, part of this came up because I was reading... I believe it was a Dread Central article on the faculty where they kind of were like retrospectively looking at it. And like, you know, there was this period in the 90s where like, there was like, it was like every like mean character or slightly antagonistic character was like either outright a lesbian or like coded as a lesbian. Like I'm thinking of Friends where like, at the time, they tried to convince us that Susan was such a bitch, and it's just yeah. that Ross was terrible. And here, you know, like, the idea is that Stokely is, like, using, like, being, you know, queer-seeming as, like, people will be afraid of me and not talk to me. And it's, like, the movie, which I don't have a problem with, like, yeah, okay, like, that, you know, as a character choice, whatever. But, like, I guess it's that the movie is, like, this is fun. Like, it, it looks at it almost approvingly. Um, and it's just so interesting because it was at the time, you know, like, that's not, like, you know, Kevin Williamson wasn't the only one doing that. Um, but it is interesting that Kevin Williamson, a gay man, wrote that in there, um, especially with a woman who I imagine at the time was probably closeted. It, you know, she might not have known she was gay yet. But um, I just find that so interesting. And then, like, if you combine all of that, with like the themes of the movie of like the con- of like conformity and alienation and like you know even if you take some of the like almost like alien references the like alien the movie references with like oh. the penetration and the you know insemination kind of aspect of it and the you know like in you know you're sort of like you know it's a parasite but like it's doing a similar thing where it's like um you know symbol symbology is not a real word it's something that dan brown made up but it like sticks in my brain symbolic of like various sort of like um sexual transgressions that i feel like often gets tied to you know queerness and that sort of thing um but the clue to all thing is just so bananas to me yeah well i'm thinking about how several characters become more sexual when we know that they're infected. Right. right? Like that seems to be a thing. Like a lot of them do is they become like, you know, and I don't know if that comes with like the confidence, like in any of them, like they become confident and therefore sexual. But, um, you know, obviously the best example is, um, Ms. Burke, who just totally goes through her, like, um, her version of like, the Princess Diaries makeover. Yes. And, you know, they also cast, like, a bunch of, like, hotties as teachers, so that also, you know, plays into it. Um, 
but it's interesting and it also is interesting to think about it in the realm of like yeah these are teenagers like sexual awakening time and you know oh, that yeah. sort of thing um so you know th this is like a threat and also like you know is it enticing you know like that sort of thing like there's a lot to be to think about there well i'm i'm also wondering and we don't have enough information sort of like there's a you know the cast has talked about this movie some but like rodriguez and, and williamson I, I couldn't find a ton from them but just thinking about like williamson writing this you know writing stokely as using lesbianism as a shield like was he trying to make a comment about right. how people you know treat treated you know right people? like here's this character who's just using what society's giving her as like a right. yeah um because yeah like you said he's he he's an out gay man and um that must have been on I mean, mind in some way. For her part, Clue Duvall loved filming this movie and enjoyed it. Yeah. So I don't think she had a problem with that. And I think she's probably still doesn't. Um, so, you know, it's also a thing where, like, I don't think people need to, like, retroactively insert a problem where, um, you know, the cast and the writers didn't have one. I mean, obviously, like, it hits a certain way and, like, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. But I also think, like, in some, you know, while the film doesn't, really engage with it as much like it also like invites you to engage with it so like you know it's not necessarily making a statement either um yeah it yeah it really doesn't which is interesting yeah so things, things to think about yeah well we'll move now into legacy legacy what is a legacy um and obviously we've talked about how the film became a cult classic in the moment, you know, uh, in 1998, it was nominated for a number of awards that year, including some Saturns and Teen Choice Awards and even a Blockbuster Entertainment Award. Um, right. But it didn't win anything uh, in any of those various awards or categories. Um, it was released on DVD on June 15th, 1999, uh, then on Blu-ray on July 31st, 2012 by Echo Bridge Home Entertainment, and uh, re-release on Blu-ray on October 7th, 2014. But interestingly and weirdly, on all of these home releases, um, there are no special features. Which I think is part of why it was so tough to find, like, any notes or anything about yes. what went into the production and... There's no director's commentary. There's no, like, if that, and if any of that was ever made, it's never been included. Um, and it's strange because this movie has really, like, like, people love this movie. People like talking about this movie. It's definitely become a thing in the, what, 25 years now since it was released? Mm -hmm. um, so it's just, it's strange that we haven't gotten sort of like a, a home release with um some behind the scenes stuff but who knows yeah so unless there's anything we've missed anything from your notes or that we didn't touch on i think all that's left is your final question all right so my final question is going to be um an opinion piece about the film itself Okay. So when we get Mary Beth's monologue at the end, right? Mm -hmm. 
and she's presenting this idea to them that like I can give you like acceptance and like sort of like a sense of peace like you know whatever the nerd will go home and won't do you know she she goes on a lot about like um and it comes across as very genuine right she's had there have been moments when she's been alone with them and didn't try to like infect them it's like she almost like wants them to like willingly accept it Mm -hmm. tells them about on my home world it was x y and z and then it started to die and that's why we're here and it all seems very like i don't know almost like weirdly benevolent Mm -hmm. my question is do you think she was lying? Um, I feel like for me, it would be more interesting if she wasn't just because I think that makes her a more interesting character. And like the point you make that she was alone with them constantly, like even like, you know, she was with them when they were, um, you know, figured out you know, their weakness, and she could have easily, you know, just dispatched with them then. I think, um, you know, to me, I would say that there was, it was probably very genuine for her, Um, you know, just because of all the circumstances leading up to it, like, the ways that she, like, really, like, integrated herself with them, like, took steps to not... um, you know, get found out, um, and to keep, you know, allow them to, like, you know, fuck up other of her alien children or whatever for, for the sake of that. So I think, um, you know, and this all also makes me think that she definitely was infected before she got there. And, like, you know, was she even infected or is this, like, just, you know, an alien human form that the queen can take, you know, and that sort of thing. So um, I think it definitely lends itself to some deeper stuff going on there yeah what your I, that was my thought too because i've seen people talk about like she was trying to trick them mm-hmm. um, or that like you know her intentions were more malicious but i don't agree i think she is telling the truth yeah um and it's like she doesn't want it necessarily to be like this antagonistic like invasion thing but like she wants to save her species and like it's like he would prefer that people choose what she's offering. Yeah. Will take them eventually if she has to. Right. Kind of situation. Because right, I think that makes her a lot more interesting if like in her mind, this is like this is a good thing. Or like yeah. she sees herself as some sort of savior. Like she's offering some sort of like better version of existence. Right. These people. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah so some stuff you can think about with this this fun little movie um as uh, all you students out there are daydreaming in your classes um because yeah it's back to school season but miss mel and i don't do that shit anymore no <laughs> <laughs> and uh that will wrap up our discussion on the faculty um if you have any thoughts about anything we've discussed or anything we didn't bring up about the movie but you think that we should have you can share them with us in a number of different ways miss mel will you tell them how they could do that 
Sure. You can send us a tweet at splatterchatter666 minus all the vowels on Twitter. Um, you can take out, you know, search however you want. We'll pop right up. You can, I was going to say you can Gmail us. You can send us an email at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can send an ask on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. You can leave a comment on the blog at splatterchatterpodcast.com. Yeah. Um, so you can do that. You, uh, yeah, and you can follow along on our Hooptober adventures if you want on Letterboxd. We're also pretty easy to find. Just Craig Ronaldo and uh, Melmoy on there, and yeah. That's right. I've also got a list on Letterboxd called Splatter Chatter, which, co- which is a list of all of the films we have covered individually on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, when we next uh, are buzzing about in your ears, uh, it will be episode 114 for our October episode, which will be our next Friday the 13th special. Mm-hmm. And so we will be covering 2003's Freddy vs. Jason. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. A Friday the 13th in October. Does it get any better than that? I don't know. I actually, I don't know if I told you I have plans. I'm going on a, like a ghost walking tour that night in Phoenixville. And then the following night, I'm going to Hocus Pocus viewing and 21 plus party. Amazing. Plus party. And it makes it sound like there's going to be some like freaky shit there. I think it's just alcohol, but who knows? That's what you think. Yeah, you're right. That is that we'll all report back. Yeah, I think it's going to be a particularly great Friday the 13th this year. Um, So be on the lookout for our episode on Freddy vs. Jason. And until then, we want to remind you to keep up the creep. And for now, we will say au revoir, adios, and hasta luego.